All right, here, let's begin. Is temperance a common good? Goddamn Spess defines the common good as, quote, the sum total of social conditions, conditions which allow people, either as groups or individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. The common good involves the exercise to exer the ability to exercise fundamental rights, such as freedom of communication, freedom to worship God as, dic as dictated by conscience. Indeed, the common good involves access to all that pertains to the ability of humans to perfect themselves, such as food, clothing, education, healthcare, truth, including truth about God, marriage and family life, work, transportation, and local and global ecological health. Lest this list seem too short, peace, a just social order, an impartial legal system, and security from aggressors belong to the common good as well. Since without these things, the pursuit of the other goods perfective of the human person is hindered. The development and well-being of society and the interconnected and of the interconnected global society is central to securing the common good for citizens. Since human perfection ultimately consists in beatific communion with God, God is the universal common good. The compendium of the social doctrine of the church concludes, quote, a society that wishes and intends to remain at the service of the human being at every level is a society that has the common good, the good of all people and of the whole person as its primary goal, end quote. In this vision, how does the virtue of temperance as understood by Christians serve the common good? Indebted to the classical and Christian tradition, Thomas Aquinas treats three sets of virtues under the rubric of the cardinal virtue of temperance. First are shame and honestas, because they are necessary for possessing temperance even though they are not temperance per se. Second come chastity, abstinence, fasting, and sobriety. These are the specific kinds of temperance because temperance is about virtuous moderation in food, drink, and sex. Third and last come virtues that in some way are allied to temperance due to the shared characteristic of moderation. Aquinas argues that these virtues include clemency, meekness, humility, and studiousness. Let me, let me offer a word um, before continuing about human nature, happiness, law, and grace. Virtues only make sense within the context of human nature, happiness, and law. Appeals to human nature hold that humans share bodily and rational powers that pertain to a specific human flourishing. For example, humans are not gonna flourish or be happy without food. Human nature includes the fact that we all have stomachs. Human nature as such has certain laws that pertain to its flourishing or happiness. It pertains to human nature to need food, but if overconsumption of food, but overconsumption overconsum of food can damage human flourishing. In this sense, our nature is measured by intrinsic laws about consumption of food. Moreover, it is possible for society to eat in ways damaging to the common good, for example, by eating a diet that has negative local and global ecological consequences. Likewise with sex. Sex serves the flourishing of the spouses by enabling procreation of children and strengthening the marital bond. And in this way, sex has its place in the flourishing of families and societies. 
but sex is measured in relation to human flourishing by certain intrinsic laws that flow from our nature and its modes of flourishing. Specifically, sexual desire can be gratified in various ways that undermine the flourishing of men and women, families, and societies, as for example, when pornography addiction or adultery breaks up, break up marriages, or when children or women are used for sexual gratification. From this perspective, we can begin to appreciate the importance of the virtue of temperance for the common good. Temperance in food and sex enables our human nature to flourish individually and communally. Rational reflection enables us to perceive that the place we give to eating and sex has implications for human happiness. Inscribed in our human nature is a wise law for human flourishing, a law that virtue makes connatural to our fallen will and passions. Temperate persons know, for example, that adultery is wrong since adultery undermines in more than one way the flourishing of human persons, families, and communities in justice, love, and unity. Given our fallenness, we need grace, divine help in order to be temperate. During our lives, we may find ourselves needing repeatedly to start over, um, asking anew for God's grace. The difficult fact is that few people are likely to make it through the week without temptations to lust or gluttony or unrighteous anger or pride or unrighteous vengeance. Christians believe that God sent his Messiah, Jesus, to inaugurate his kingdom of love by conquering sin and death through his cross and resurrection and to pour out his life-giving spirit. The church exists as the communion of grace and mercy. Christians fall back into sin all too often, but this should not cause us to underestimate or neglect the power of divine grace and mercy. God promises to transform those who call upon him in faith and trust so that body and soul, the blessed will dwell everlastingly with the all holy God. We can experience a foretaste of this beatitude here now insofar as grace temperance or infused temperance, the gift of um, you know, the um, infused virtue of temperance, despite our ongoing weakness and brokenness enables us to be in a communion of love with our brothers and sisters manifesting Christ's reign. I hope it's clear already that the common good needs temperance. When mired in intemperance or in a culture of intemperance, people are hindered in their ability to perfect their human nature. And the result is that persons, families, and societies suffer in themselves and in their relation to God. In what follows, I wish to examine five aspects of Christian temperance in more detail. And the five aspects are these, temperate desire for food, chastity, temperate anger, humility, and studiousness. I, I take Thomas Aquinas as a guide, although behind Aquinas stand a number of other guides, including the major Greek and Roman philosophers, the witness of scripture, and the church fathers. Okay, so the first one is um, temperate desire for food. Um, okay, persons who eat only a little bit are not necessarily temperate. I'm, I'm sort of scrawny, but that doesn't mean I'm temperate. <laughs> okay, so in fact, they may not be eating enough or for the sustenance of their body in order to do the work that God calls them to do. Temperate eating is not measured by whether one is thin or fat. 
or by how much one eats. What then makes for a temperate relation to food? The answer is that the temperate person eats so as to sustain bodily life with the goal of serving others. The temperate eater always keeps the common good in view rather than simply eating to gratify himself or herself. In this sense, temperate eating is about our intention. Are we eating in a self-focused way? Or are we eating with others in view, aware that our bodily life has the purpose of serving God and neighbor? I note that the service to others that a temperate eater has in view can take many forms. For example, a temperate eater will wish to build up familial and friendship bonds and to welcome the stranger through sharing good meals together. A temperate eater will take time to enjoy meals with family and friends. Preparation of a good meal and enjoyment of a good meal are often among the richest ways of interacting, interacting with family and friends. Welcoming strangers by inviting them to meals and including them thereby in the cir circle of family and friends is a sign of temperate eating. In addition to building up familial and friendship bonds and welcoming the stranger, temperate eating will involve considerations considering the ramifications of our eating upon others in a broad range of ways. For example, a gluttonous person may not actually consume very much food. One can be gluttonous, says Aquinas, if one becomes dainty in one's eating so that one becomes very hard to please. One may demand only the best fruits, vegetables, and so forth. To please one's palate, one may spend a great deal on the finest things while one's neighbors go hungry. It is, it is one thing if one prepares and enjoys a fine meal as part of building up familial and friendship bonds, but it's another thing if one self-centeredly eats well while others are doing without. Similarly, ecological ramifications of how we eat need attention. It may be that we are not attentive enough to what's required for feeding the world's large population, for example. If we demand that people solely eat locally sourced foods, for example, we may be forgetting that food from the United States goes to many nations that otherwise would not be able to feed their population. On the other hand, if we insist upon eating a diet that is ecologically destructive to maintain, then we are not looking out for the common good. Okay, that, that takes care of eating. The next one is um, chastity. Okay, so. I'm gonna go on for a while about chastity because it's the most controversial one. Like, who cares about eating and all that stuff? Sex is not like food, that's sort of obvious. People will starve without food, but it's possible to live long and happily without sex since the human need for sociality can be met in other ways. Yet if sex had not been desirable, the human race would have ended shortly after it began. And if sex did not help to bond the couple together as it does, then it would have been much less likely that children would be raised by both parents rather than solely by the mother. In speaking about the relationship of human sexuality to the common good, one can begin with the good of children. Since their well-being depends in many ways upon the choices of their parents, including the, the parents' sexual choices, as I'm going to discuss. Helen Alvarez and other scholars have pointed out that in contemporary Western culture, governments have focused on ensuring freedom for adult sexual expression 
rather than on ensuring that children have the best possible chance of being raised by their loving mother and father, or on ensuring that sexual expression is understood within this latter context. An example is pornography, which other than child pornography is essentially unregulated by Western governments. Contraception is promoted heavily by governments in the West and elsewhere on the grounds that adult sexual expression should not be limited by fear of having a child or by unreadiness to have one. In addition, it now seems bigoted to judge homosexual acts to be immoral or to restrict marriage to be being between a man and a woman as, as the children on the grounds that children needed, need to be raised by their father and mother. Open marriage and polyamory are, well, well of course, much less prevalent, are viewed as acceptable in our culture so long as the adult partners fully consent. Single motherhood is an option that culturally speaking bears no stigma, at least if one is wealthy enough to afford it. Of course, that's a big, that's a big caveat. Surrogate motherhood, in vitro fertilization for a, a woman who cannot conceive and sperm donation are widely approved. Now, most of the above mentioned things have to do with the free expression of sexuality, though some, uh, for example, surrogacy and in vitro have to do exclusively with the conception of, of a child. By contrast, temperate use of sexual desire consistently thinks in terms of the full flourishing of the person, family, and society. Since every person was once a child, reflection upon temperate use of sexual desire must begin there with reflection upon how a particular use of sexual desire is related to what conduces to the flourishing of children and families. Okay, so in fornication, I'm gonna begin with fornication. I'm, I'm following Aquinas' order pretty much. <laughs> in fornication, the man and woman do not commit to each other, commit to each other in a public long-term way. The result is that if the act of, sec of intercourse results in the procreation of a child, the child is much less likely, this is for the fornicating couple, to be raised by both of his, his or her parents or integrated into both parents' extended families. With negative, this has negative consequences for the child, of course. Furthermore, if the man and woman become used to fornicating, it can easily happen that they may, there, they may become used to having short-term sexual relationships rather than ever making a full commitment to another person. Such expression of sexual desire does not conduce to the man and woman's flourishing, which is enhanced by stable long-term relationships. And it definitely does not conduce to the flourishing of a child or children that come forth from the man and woman. As many studies have shown, children flourish best when they are raised by their biological mother and father. Adultery for its part is a form of sexual expression that weakens the bond of marriage. In a number of cases, it leads to divorce, and in any case, it weakens a marriage. This is detrimental to the good of children, given that children flourish best when they're raised by their mother and father in a stable family. As movies such as Fatal Attraction show, adultery is generally opposed to human happiness. If, if often, it, it often arises from a deep unhappiness, adultery often arises from a deep unhappiness rooted in self-centeredness, ego, or need for attention. And it generally does not meet the needs of the persons involved. 
It's no wonder that adultery carries with it an odor of sleaziness, since it breaks a central element of a person's marriage vow. Objectively speaking, an adulterous person acts in a self-centered and untrustworthy way, even if particular situations carry with them rationales that may perhaps be understandable. When the woman in the gospel confesses her adultery, Jesus offers her the gift of divine mercy, joined to the command to go and do not sin again. End quote. Again, virtuous sexual, um, virtuous expression of sexual desire will seek the good of the other person and the good of families and society. A key part of the common good is the raising of children who carry forward the human race and deserve the chance to perfect themselves through access to the full panoply of human goods. This is best done, as I've already said a few times, from within a family where the father and mother raise the child to get or children together. What about masturbation, which today is widely tied to pornography use? Chastity orders sexual desire toward relationship with another person and toward strong family life. Masturbation orders sexual desire toward release of tension without relation toward anyone else. The issues here include the development of sexual habits and the relational damage caused by steady pornography use. The effects of pornography on the common good are today becoming uh, all too clear, not only in terms of how pornography pre presents women and men, but also in its impact upon marriages and its causing of sexual dysfunction. Now, um, uh, obviously with the masturbation, there's the issue of uh, maturity. So uh, I just make that, make that point. Homosexual intercourse is bound up with a sense of self or identity of many people as expressed in their closest uh, relationships. Although for temperate persons, sexual expression is not necessary for flourishing, Nonetheless, one should not minimize the cross that lack of sexual expression can be. In reflecting on the status of homosexual intercourse in relation to the common good, its impact upon the flourishing of children needs close attention. The order, ordering of human sexuality to procreation is an ordering that is hardwired into human biology. Whether or not men and women choose to have children, this intrinsic ordering can be seen in the reasonable desire of persons who are gay or lesbian to have children through surrogacy or sperm donation. In such cases, the children are raised by the two men or the two women. I note that it does not pertain to the common good, and in fact, it is unjust to intentionally deprive a child e either of a father or of a mother. Generally speaking, the father and the mother have different things to offer a child. Sexual expression then is never merely a private matter, but always ends up having consequences for children, families, and societies. Okay, now contraception. Um, contraceptive sexual intercourse separates the procreative and unitive dimensions of sexual intercourse by deliberately closing off the procreative dimension. As a result, the association of sex with procreation becomes almost extrinsic. I hold that personal and familial flourishing requires keeping the procreative end fully in place. 
This means that each act of sexual intercourse should be objectively open to the procreation of children, whether or not the man and woman are fertile or whether or not they in, in, are consciously intending any, any such thing as procreation. In the act of sexual intercourse, the partners embrace consciously or unconsciously its relationship to new life rather than deliberately frustrating the procreative end. Now, does closing off the procreative end, however, serve the common good by reducing human population on the crowded planet and by helping impoverished people or single people not have lots of needy children? The birth rate has dropped below replacement levels in almost all countries with widespread access to contraception. But Christians do not look at children as mere numbers. Each child has an eternal destiny. Each child is called to glorious communion with God, even here now. On the other hand, Christians do recognize that population explosions cause problems. For Christians, there will always be a place for singleness in the Lord and for sexual abstinence, including the abstinence method called natural family planning. I distinguish that from contraception because, or by natural family planning, by means of which married couples have sexual intercourse only during non-fertile periods for due reasons. Aquinas notes that, quote, chastity takes its name from the fact that reason chastises concupiscence, which, like a child, needs curbing, end quote. He recognizes, that, he recognizes the force of the sexual drive, and he understands the fact that our human nature has fallen. It's no wonder that sacramental grace and the gift of divine mercy are often directed toward healing falls caused by sexual sin. Sometimes the church is seen as overly focused on sexual morality, but the impact that a solid family life has for personal and societal flourishing shows that the church is not mistaken on this point. As the late Anglican moral theologian Daniel Westberg comments, quote, there are inherent purposes in human activities that need to be recognized and respected. We are not free simply to impose our individual desires and purposes as our culture trains us to, end quote. Personal and societal flourishing means discerning and furthering the ends characteristic of human flourishing. Of course, for the attainment of happiness in the face of repeated falls, Christ's merciful grace is needed. In fact, we must persevere with repentance and hope, trusting not in our own weakness, but in our merciful Savior. Okay, well, that, that takes care of chastity. I know that's really too short, but um, now I'm going to do um, temperate anger. And if anybody get angry at me for what I said about chastity, well, don't worry, because we're now at temperate anger. <laughs> okay, so here it is. Although some church fathers hold that all anger is a sin, Aquinas and the majority of Christian thinkers allow for righteous anger. After all, Jesus occasionally appears to show anger, as for instance, in driving out the temple traders. Nevertheless, the New Testament contains many very strong warnings against anger. Aquinas therefore lists anger under the rubric of vices opposed to temperance, even though he affirms that righteous anger against injustice 
is justified. For his distinction between unrighteous anger and righteous anger, he relies upon passages such as Ephesians 4.26, be angry but do not sin, which, inter which he interprets in light of Ephesians 4.31, quote, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice, end quote. So to achieve temperate anger, well, that's generally the work of grace in the fallen human being. We've all experienced the passion of anger flare up and take control of us, just as most of us have experienced sudden movements of lust and gluttony. It's quite normal. Aquinas suggests that the passion of anger must be virtuously tempered by what he calls meekness. Meekness is not weakness. In fact, the meek person shows unusual strength of character. I should know since I have trouble with this one sometimes. Since a meek person is truly slow to anger, that's James 1.19. Jesus Christ is an example of meekness since he extended mercy to his enemies. Meekness is the self-possession that we need in order to treat others in accord with the dignity that they truly possess. Imagine how much the common good would be strengthened if people did not angrily lash out against each other. Maybe I should, maybe I should post that on Twitter today. I'll, I'll, lash out, I'll lash out on the people who are angrily lashing out. Um, that wouldn't be good though. Okay, so unrighteous anger tends to inflict deep wounds upon those who bear its brunt. Often, sadly, it's members of our own family who are the ones that suffer from our unrighteous anger. In a rage, we say hurtful things that are not easily erased, if ever, from the recipient's memory. Unrighteous anger easily fuels a cycle of vengeance, like in The Prince's Bride. But that was a good one, though. The people against whom we have unleashed our anger bide their time until they can repay us in spades. Anger can destroy relationships between husband and wife, parent and child, or colleagues at work. Anger can produce violence, including large-scale violence between nations. No wonder Jesus says, quote, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment, end quote. Anger goes wrong when it exceeds the bounds of reason. If we perceive an injustice, for example, the Jim Crow laws in the American South prior to the 1960s, or the killing of 1,000 black infants per day under the abortion regime at the present moment, we should feel temperate anger. It would be unreasonable not to feel, feel anger at such painful injustice but anger can lead us astray if we lack temperance, since we will not be able to channel it into positive action or constructive words, nor will we be able to moderate it in a due fashion. Aquinas also warns against allowing our anger to seethe and make us bitter. If we are to be imitators of our merciful God, treating other people in ways that build up communion and serve justice, we will need the temperance that governs and moderates our passion of anger. As noted above, under normal circumstances, this will require God's grace and plenty of it, by which God heals our fallen nature and enables us to follow Christ's path of love. Okay, now is next one is humility. Um, 
The dignity of persons cannot be squared with a view of humility that one finds in some early and medieval Christian authors. I'm, I'm sorry to the patristics experts in the, in the crowd. Um, but in, in the writings of some of these early and, and medieval um, Christian authors, humility came to mean denigrating oneself to the utmost and rejoicing in being humiliated by others. The humility that Aquinas associates with temperance is not this self-denigration. Indeed, Aquinas thinks that true humility includes a just assessment and appreciation of one's strengths, one's own talents, since a humble person gives glory to God for the talents that God truly has given. Humility enables one to care about the common good because one does not imagine oneself any longer to be the center of the universe. Pride places the self at the center and makes the self the idol whom one worships. In pride, the person no longer recognizes his or her radical contingency and creatureliness. On, on this view, um, the, the view of pride, the more independent we are, the freer and more human we are. Pride urges that as free beings, we are self-creators and stand as a law to ourselves. From this standpoint, the purpose of human laws is to unleash the self-creating power of the human agent. In fact, however, we do not flourish when we reject our human nature and its limits. Human nature is, is not a limiting principle that God or the cosmos has inflicted upon us, but rather it is the path along which we can flourish even while through God's grace, transcending some limits of human, free, of human faculties. Admittedly, it's possible to dream about having absolute charge over one's own being. I've, I've dreamed this myself. Who wants to have to risk everything in dying? Who wants to have to risk some kind of annihilation? Who wants to depend radically upon God? to chart the path forward when it seems that God has left us oftentimes far too vulnerable. In the presence of God, we can prefer to accuse or ignore rather than like accusing God or ignoring God, <laughs> rather than feeling like worshiping. If we do have to worship, we want it to be on our terms in a church that we can feel proud of with members as good as ourselves. We do not wish to be told what to believe or what to do by anyone. And, and we, I'm including myself here. In fact, we may wish God had been as proud as we are and had come as, as the Messiah with power, smiting his enemies and ours and broadcasting his mighty existence so as to leave no room for doubt. Of course, we would have been the first to be smited. Um, but anyway, the point is, why be so humble? Why is God? Why does God be... Why did God choose to be so humble and lowly, even to the point of death on a cross? Humility can seem, when you really look at it, the most overrated virtue. Yet our true flourishing requires learning not to grasp and overpower, but to receive and love. The consequences of pride are grim for humanity. Christians are too often no better than anyone else in this regard. We, had, we too have abused power and acted with arrogance, with deadly consequences. When we grasp the good selfishly for ourselves, we forget that we are creatures. We follow the path of the proud and violent people described in the wisdom of Solomon. 
who assumed that, quote, we were born by mere chance, and hereafter we shall be, be as though we had never been, end quote, and who therefore think it rational to seize, quote, the good things that exist, and also they also contend that it is best to, quote, let our might be our law of right, for what is weak proves itself to be useless, end quote. Um, they go on and then persecute the righteous uh, man. This path leads to personal and communal destruction, not to flourishing. It's the path of foolishness. In his humility, Jesus reveals God to us and frees us from our proud grasping. When we open ourselves to God in humility, imitating Jesus and awaiting his gifts, it's then that we are configured to creatures configured as creatures to the giver. As humble people, we become people who can not only receive life with God, but can also share goods with others and place others' needs above our own wants. This becomes possible for us. We thereby become temperate people who truly serve the common good. Notice that true humility does not mean ceasing to desire goods for ourselves, such as the good of being raised by Christ to share in the life of beatitude. Humility simply means that we recognize that humans are not the ultimate source of goods and that we are not the center of things. Humility recalls us to the basis of true relationship with God and neighbor. We learn to rejoice that God gives good goods to others. This is the attitude that care for the common good requires. We may choose to renounce certain common goods, such as raising a family, in order to serve God in other ways. The greatest common good, divine grace, pours into our hearts when we have humility. Too easily, pride inflates our sense of self to such a degree that we cannot bear criticism of any kind. I, I don't like, I, like once I, if I publish a book, I, I don't like to get criticized about it because it's too late, you know, so I can understand this. The moderating influence of humility enables us to confess our faults before God and neighbor. This is important because being sinners, we will fail both God and neighbor many times, often in such sad ways during our own lives. If we cannot accept responsibility and blame, we cannot be forgiven and we cannot reenter into communion with God and neighbor. Humility gives us a taste for the common good of truth even when such truth casts us in a poor light. Humility is a central theme in the New Testament, of course. Jesus teaches, quote, whoever humbles himself like a child, like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, end quote. Does this mean that God wants us small and pitiful, abasing ourselves before his power? On the contrary, God wants our flourishing as Reinhard Fellmeyer says, the purpose of the virtue of humility is, quote, not self-denial, but self-realization as a life together with God and with, with the neighbor, end quote. Humility involves self-realization because it removes our self-seeking and impediment to sharing in and serving the common good that perfects us individually and um, socially. It turns us toward the true common good of human life, name of God. 
Okay, the last one is studiousness. I think we have time for it. Um, in what does education, certainly a common good, consist? With intense effort, people have made extraordinary discoveries, invented technologies and medicines, and contributed to human culture. For such contributions, some people have received payment and praise in human life, in their own earthly lives. Some have been able to copyright their writings or patent their discoveries so that they might benefit financially from their, their learning. But sooner or later, their discoveries and insights become common knowledge available for everyone to draw upon. Temperate studiousness, studiousness means not trying to claim truth as one's own and not desiring truth in order to exalt oneself, but rather receiving truth as a common good. The primary truth is the truth of God. This truth is for everyone. Does this mean that people, or at least Christians, should not study earthly things, such as natural science or computer science and the like? On the contrary, such things are studied rightly, however, when we remember that they are not ultimate. Finite things cannot rightly be studied as ends in themselves, as though they, they bear no, as though they bore no relation whatsoever to a divine source. To study finite things in such a way would distort their truth. Everything we study opens up to the creator. The purpose of learning about finite things then is to be of service to God and neighbor. The virtue of studiousness tempers our desire to master everything through our own minds in service to our self-aggrandizement. By contrast, the vice of curiositas encourages us either to titillate our minds with lesser matters or to imagine that truth is simply a matter of power. Humans may seek to turn truth into power. This is all too frequent. What power we would have over reality if we could just master it. In fact, of course, such mastery is ultimately a delusion. Even if we could somehow apprehend everything about finite beings, it would be beyond us to understand why anything exists at all. We might gain knowledge of beings, but existence itself would remain a mystery. Now that God has revealed himself in Christ, it may seem that Christians may claim to have mastered God. The virtue of pseudonymous recognizes that this is far from the case. God has revealed himself in Christ as love, but what could eternal, uncreated, triune love be? And how would our finite minds grasp such a reality? In fact, we can't apprehend it, not in any comprehensive way. We can speak about it analogously, taking our finite conception of the perfection of love and stripping away all meanings that are bound up with finitude, but it's not for us in our earthly lives to know without limit. If the reason we desire knowledge is to become the master of ourselves or the master of others or to surpass earthly limits, we will be profoundly disappointed. The virtue of studiousness tempers such absurd desire for mastery, mastery of the mind. Like all our appetites, our intellectual appetite needs to be healed by God's grace. Without grace, it's easy for scholars either to fall into laziness or frivolity or else to become caught up in our learning and to lord it over, lord our erudition over all lesser, supposedly lesser humans. To be intellectually free, we need to turn our minds higher, allowing that our minds are not the greatest. 
we thereby are liberated from the self-centeredness that supposes that we really are the greatest knowers. We are freed to see the wonder and the mystery in all created things, a mystery that signals the presence of the infinite mind of the creator. This enables us to realize that all knowledge and all things perfective of the human person are common goods rooted in God. As Paul says, quote, I'm sure you knew I was going to quote this one. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if one loves God, one is known by him, end quote. Okay, now the conclusion. Let me return once more to the meaning of the common good. In his chapter on the hand, chapter in the Handbook of Catholic Social Teaching, Gregorio Gutian observes, quote, respect for the human person, peace, social well-being, and integral development are all essential elements of the common good, which, quote, always has the flourishing of all people and of the whole person as its primary goal, end quote. The virtue of temperance, however, has a bad name today and hardly seems conducive to human flourishing or respect for human persons. Why is, okay, this is particularly the case with chastity. Perhaps with the exception of adultery, sexual acts between consenting adults are not viewed today as something whose moral status is up for debate. Similarly, to warn against gluttony is thought to be either fat shaming or else a way of denying people the pleasure of enjoying a good meal. In our culture, angry persons are often encouraged to be even more angry even implacably so, if their views are thought to be correct. In politics, each side deems furious anger against the other side to be good, while at the same time considering the other side to be divisive and in need of silencing. Humility is imagined to be merely low self-esteem, which causes people to be unable to take advantage of common goods available in our society. Studiousness, sounds like a humorless nerdiness at best or an insidious path of privilege at worst. I have argued that these virtues are in fact in service to the common good. Each of them serves individual familial and societal flourishing in earthly life and each of them has an important role in the grace journey to true happiness with God. Since I am not particularly temperate myself, I know well the need for repentance, grace, forgiveness, and continual trying again in a life measured by these virtues. If it were not for God's mercy and help, there would be no use trying. It doesn't surprise me that the vices opposed to these virtues are popular. I'm in no position to judge anyone else in these matters, especially since Jesus cautioned, quote, judge not lest that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged and the measure you give will be the measure you get." End quote. Yet as Reinhard Huter says, and in my view, um, no Thomistic Institute lecture should, should fail, um, fail to quote um, Reinhard, who is such a, to me, a great Thomist. Here's what he says, quote, the virtue of chastity is a principal protector of human dignity, end quote and its temperance in all its dimensions that frees us to pursue, quote, ends determined by the virtue of prudence in accord with the order of reason rightly oriented to the ultimate end, beatitude, end quote. In our culture, few things could be more important for fostering the common good 
been promoting and living the virtues of temperate eating, sex, anger, humility, and study. Thank you very much.